Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Secrets of a Serial Killer. I'm your host, Nick. Well, I couldn't find any killers that fit, like, the Christmas theme, so I had to go with what I had best, and that was one individual, Bruce McArthur. So I'm going to go ahead and get into his story because there's some things I want to talk about with y'all after the episode. So let's get right into it. So Bruce McArthur, a.k.a. the Mall Santa, he was born in 1951 in Lindsay Lakes, Canada. His parents were very respected people in the community, but behind closed doors was actually a different story. His parents had different religious viewpoints. Ica, or Aya, whatever, however you pronounce it, his mother was an Irish Catholic, and his father, Mac, was a Scottish Presbyterian. Bruce was actually closer to his mother, so he would choose her side, because you know a lot of times... Boys were closer to our mothers, and daughters are closer to the fathers. It's always been that way. His dad was tough on him, though, and sometimes would be very verbally abusive to him. Bruce said that he thinks that his father was more tough on him, not because of the religious views, but the lack of masculinity. <laughs> Sorry, I have a little bit of COVID. And I was supposed to record this yesterday, but here I am doing it today, and I'm trying not to cough, so please forgive me. Not sure when Bruce found out that he was gay, but coming out was not an option. 1960s with religious parents and being gay? Nah, that definitely was not, nope, that was not appropriate at all. A person shaming someone for being gay has a long-lasting effect on the queer community in itself, causing self-harm, self-loathing, abuse of other members of the community, low self-esteem, and more, especially in adolescents, teens, and young adults. Not sure what happened between him and his father, but... He had to hide his true self. The McArthurs also had a reputation to uphold. Some members of the community sent their troubled kids to go stay with them. They had to work around the farm and do manual labor in exchange for the room and board. A childhood friend actually said that there would be six to ten kids coming and going from the McArthurs' house. Bruce was helping around the farm as well and did well in school and won song competitions. Another boy said Bruce was strict when it came to the rules. He would tattletale on the other boys if they did something wrong. And in the ninth grade, when he went to high school, he was more opinionated to the point where the yearbook said underneath his name, a good argumenter. I couldn't stand those people. People always debate everything or try to argue about something just to prove that they're right and I'm wrong. Couldn't stand those type of people. Also, it says, what does the future hold for you? And he wrote, your guess is as good as mine. He started dating another student named Janice Campbell. He considered himself bisexual and he wasn't denying it by dating Janice. He tried to live up to his dad's expectations and that includes dating girls. The relationship was going well. They had plans on moving in together when he graduated. They moved 40 miles away from Toronto to a place called Ishawasha. I don't know how to pronounce it. Bruce started working at Eden's, a Canadian store. So in 1974, at the age of 23 years old, they got married. And so going to church actually helped him deal with the guilty feelings of him being gay. A few years later, he left his job. Not sure if he was fired or he just quit. But he became a traveling salesperson instead for a sock company. He was on the road a lot. And when Bruce was 27, his mom died of cancer at the age of 49. That's really scary because my mom is like about to be 49 this year and she battled breast cancer a couple years ago. And that's very scary. 
A couple years later, his father died from a brain tumor. Oh, God, my sister had that when she was 12 years old. That's scary as fuck, too. In his 30s, he doubled down on his life with his wife. And in 1986, he bought a red brick house on the corner of the street. In the early 1990s, when Bruce was in his 40s, he actually started cheating on his wife with other men. We're not sure when he found these men at, but it's probably on the road. But he felt too guilty to keep it a secret from his wife. And after a year and a half of cheating on her, he finally confessed to his wife. The marriage didn't end, and they continued to live together for a couple more years. It was probably due to the children. In the late 1990s, they separated. Bruce moved out and went to Toronto. There was like a big gay scene there, and he met a guy at one of the bars named Scan Garage. Yes, he was tall and lanky and probably a decent-looking dude, and Bruce was kind of like a short, fat guy who was very quiet. Scan Garage was actually into older men, excuse me. They might have just been friends because Bruce already had a boyfriend at the time when he met this guy. And the relationship between Bruce and his boyfriend ended. He had a hard time dealing with the breakup. He also lost his job at McGregor Sock Company. So in 1999, his wife and him went bankrupt and he lost everything and damn near just his whole entire life. And he was like 50 years old and he hit rock bottom at this point. So Halloween 2001, the loneliness was actually caving in on him, but he noticed a young man, Mark Henderson, entering an apartment building. Some say that they knew each other, some say that they didn't. Mark was a sex worker, an actor, and a nurse, so they may or may not have known each other. Mark noticed Bruce walking up behind him, so he kept the door open for him, and Bruce walked by, and instead of saying thank you, he just gave him a cold, mean stare. As Mark was putting his key into the lock, Bruce came up behind him and hit him in the back of the head with the steel pipe. See, Mark got a good look at his attacker when he was talking to the police and he said he looked like a Komodo dragon. Well, Bruce, he would beat Mark unconscious and at the age of 50, he had no records of violence. So this is the first time that Bruce has ever committed any type of violence. So Mark woke up and called the police, but Bruce went to the police station and turned himself in and said he didn't know why he did it. One theory, he took poppers that day, which is a drug, and that made him do it. And yeah, another is just, he just had a lot of rage from all the shit that happened in his life, and he just happened to let it out on this individual. So January 2003... MacArthur, who was 50 years old, pled guilty for assault with a deadly weapon. He had no antisocial behavior or personality disorder. A therapist thought maybe, like I just said a moment ago, that he had rage built up inside of him. And he was slowly letting it out over time. But he also didn't have no record of a criminal record, which is shocking. Most serial killers have petty crimes or violence or even both on their records. So for Bruce that have neither one of them, very unique. Not really sure how many serial killers out there that have zero violence or a criminal record, but that's just straight going to killing. We're not really sure. Bruce said that he had no recollection of the attack, and so he's thinking maybe he had an epileptic seizure at the time. And in court, it proves that he has epilepsy but that doesn't prove for you to beat somebody's ass and damn near almost kill them i know two people with epilepsy and they never harmed or killed anybody before so 
yeah, not a really good argument. He ended up just getting house arrests. He was banned from the gay village as part of his sentencing. The next couple of years, he just laid low and told his probation officer he was looking for love, but before that, he needed to reinvent himself. He needed a new job, and in the mid-2000s, he started his own landscaping business called Artistic Designs. He found enough work to actually run the business. His financial troubles were now over, and so he turned his attention to dating. And so he'd go on these websites looking for love, and actually one of the websites where I laugh at it now was called Silver Daddies. (laughs) I don't know, it still makes me laugh. He put on his profile he's into younger men, and I quote, I can be shy, but once I get to know you, I'm very romantic at heart. He ended up dating that guy that he actually met years before when he had that boyfriend, uh, Skangarage. So they started dating, and one of Skangarage's friends thought that Bruce was weird and that he didn't really hang out with his boyfriend and his friends. He said that he would like to hang out at a dark place called The Eagle, which, you know, it's a perfect place if you're trying to be anonymous, Joel said. Some people thought Bruce was a good dude. Joel was the only person that thought he was a little weird. One friend called him the kindest person he ever known. He was very helpful with a lot of things. But in his late 50s, he got a seasonal gig as a mall Santa. Well, he looked just like Santa, so it was easy for him to get the job. So it was summer 2010. It seems like he had everything he ever wanted. But deep down, there was this rage that wouldn't disappear and he thought that his boyfriend was actually seeing other men. We don't know if he actually was, but his young boyfriend tried to reassure him that he wasn't. But obviously Bruce wasn't listening or giving a damn, and he even grew more and more jealous. When they stopped seeing, you know, the boyfriend less and less, talking about the friends, they started to worry. The evening of September 6, Bruce and his boyfriend went out to the town, leaving a bar called Zipper's which is a gay bar. After leaving Zippers, Bruce told his boyfriend, actually took his boyfriend back to his apartment, and they had a few drinks, maybe some sex, not sure what happened, but sometime during the night, Bruce just immediately snapped. Bruce was convinced his boyfriend was still cheating on him, and we're not sure if that's true or not. No one will ever know, and if he couldn't have him, no one can. Not sure how he killed him, but he probably strangled him because of what he did to all his other victims later on. So that's just our best guess. He drove his boyfriend's body to the street called Mallory Crescent. It was some random house that some people lived in that he did some work for. So he dismembered his boyfriend and he put him in one of the potter plants and he put it at the back of the property. So his boyfriend actually loved fashion, so he had a lot of jewelry all over his body. And so he took something from his wrist and took it right off of him. I think it was his wrist or he took off one of his rings. I'm not really sure, but he pocketed it and continued on. And it's not uncommon for serial killers to have keepsakes. It's not really for financial gain. It's either to feel closer to the person or to relive the murder over again. A few hours afterwards, his friends got very worried, and they noticed that his puppy hasn't been taken outside in a while. You know, they went to his apartment and looked. The friends knew that Bruce was the only guy around him, and he had a history of violence. 
They were confused that the police didn't investigate him at all. He went back to living his life, and it didn't seem like he cared about murdering his boyfriend at all. Around Christmas, he attacked a 44-year-old named Adol. I'm not going to say the rest of his name because I'm not good with foreigner names. No disrespect. It's just I'm not good with that. They already knew each other prior from a dating website. He was living a double life, and he had a wife and two kids at home. And then he would go out to the gay bars and associate with the other men. Bruce knew that the guy was living a double life. So he decided that, you know what, it ain't going to be traced back to me, so I'm going to take advantage of this. So on December 29th, he called his wife, the individual, and said that he was with some co-workers and that he was working late. Nobody knows exactly why he would call her saying that or what happened, but speculation said that he called his wife before he went out and got some drinks with Bruce. And then he took him back to his place that was house-sitting on Moore Avenue. That's what Bruce was doing. And he showed off the house, not sure if he was showing off saying it was his or he was just trying to do that to try to lure him inside. Not really sure. When he had his bat turned towards Bruce, Bruce attacked him and probably hit him in the head and strangled him to death. Still not sure. After he dismembered him, he put him in a large pot or planters and put him in the back of the property as well. So... The people that owned the house on Mallory Crust, they had no idea or had any involvement because they were away a lot. But for them to give Bruce the access to the house is a little weird, if you ask me. He also had a uh, killing ritual. When he killed Mark, it was on Halloween 2001. He killed his boyfriend, Skagaraj, on Labor Day 2010, the weekend of it. And then he killed his last victim, Abdul, in between Christmas and New Year's. So it seemed like he liked to kill around the holidays, it seems like. Most of the time, when, you know, crimes during the holidays happen, it's either larceny, carjacking, drinking and driving. Not necessarily murder happens around that time. I mean, not really sure, but serial killers don't really seem like they kill a lot around that time either, so... His wife reported a missing person, but since he had a double life, no one knew that he was actually in the gay village earlier that night or ever at all. They didn't know that he was with Bruce either. His disappearance went unnoticed in the village. Even when they found his car near Moore Avenue a week later, still no clear leads. Two men that were immigrants from countries that homosexuality was illegal, he might have related to a man about covering up his sexuality. Bruce was really good at standing out. People, <clears throat> sorry, Bruce was really good at sniffing out people's weaknesses and telling them what they want to hear. I mean, he was a salesperson for many, many years. So on October 8th, 2012, he turned 60 years old. He rekindled with an ex a few days later. Mishia, I don't know how to say his name, used to work at his landscaping business, and they also dated here and there. Originally from Afghanistan, he also lived a double life in the village. He told him that they should have a night in instead of going out to the bar. So he probably invited him over to his apartment, and when he had his guard down, he strangled him to death. But the cause of death is unknown, just speculation. Instead of dismembering him, he decided to take photos of him with the Polaroid camera. He had saved the photos on his computer under his name. He would sometimes put a fur coat and a hat and maybe a cigar in their mouth before taking a photo. Not sure which victims he dressed up or didn't, but that became his M.O. 
Posing and staging a body are two different things. Posing is to set up a body a certain way to satisfy the fantasy of the offender. Staging is to attempt to mislead law enforcement. He wasn't trying to show the police his photos. He was just trying to keep them for his personal use, so he would fall under the category of posing. Once he was done with the photos and upload them to his computer, he would dismember the dude's body and put it in the ravine behind Mallory Cruss Road. Since he's done work there, he had access to the house. Maija's son called the police reporting that his father was missing. Okay, I don't know how to say it still. It didn't seem like they connected the first two murders, but the moment Maija went missing, things changed. So November 2012, the Toronto police launched a task force to investigate the three murders. They didn't find much, but their conclusion was that they either been kidnapped or murdered. They went through people's contacts and their emails, and they came across Silver Fox 51. So the two guys actually had a contact list that had the same name in there. And it showed up in one of the guy's emails, and it showed up in the other guy's notebook. The email content had a number attached to it. It was Bruce McArthur's number. November 11th, 2013. Police interviewed Bruce. He was looked at more of a witness than a suspect, someone who can help with the investigation. He confirmed that the email was his, and he also had a sexual relationship with one of the guys, and that he was friends with the other guy but he didn't recognize Abdul at all. Not sure if they looked into his background before interviewing him or not, but if they did, they would have seen that he had an assault charge from 2001. They most likely did not. They ended up letting him go, and Project Houston fell apart, and the one person that was in charge was saying it was taking too many resources and they had no leads. The community was still scared, and Bruce laid low for a while. So for about three years to be exact, on August 2015, he met another refugee, and they had no prior history, so probably they met on a dating app. I don't know. I mean, he's been using Grindr and Silver Daddy, so who knows where he met this guy at. So August 15th, they met up and had sex. Sometimes he would be very weirded out about taking these guys back to his place, so he would invite them inside of his red Dodge Caravan. Later that night, he strangled the guy with something, maybe a cord, a rope, not really sure, but the court document said it was sexual in nature. He took photos of the dude, and after the photos, he started dismembering the body. It's been three years, but it's like he never stopped, and he still had access to the house on Mallory Crescent. He buried the remains there. He kept the ones that he liked, and deleted the other photos and put them in a folder on his computer. He waited for a few months before doing it again because back-to-back will draw too much attention, so he knew what he was doing. And then he met his 37-year-old victim. The gentleman came to Canada for asylum-seeking but was denied. So in 2015, he had no longer had a work permit. He also had a high chance of being deported and Bruce being a skilled killer and a smart person he took advantage of this and this guy had no ties with the gay village and we don't even know if he identified as queer not sure how they met though so on January 6 they met up and he also strangled him with the weapon it was later called sexual in nature posed them up for the photos and just saved them to his computers like he did to the previous victims Like all the others, he dismembered and buried them in the back of Mallory Crest's house.
he was very close to his family, but when they didn't hear nothing from him, they didn't really think there was anything wrong because his family thought just because he was at a higher risk of being deported that he was hiding from authorities. He wasn't reported missing, so Bruce got away with it. If his family did go to the police, two things would have happened. One, they would have not taken it serious at all. And two, when they did look for him and found him, they would immediately deport him and not even worry about anything else. And that's very sad. In April 2016, Bruce met his new victim named Dean. He was different. He had a mental illness which put him on the street. He strangled Dean, photographed him, and took his jewelry from him. Taking jewelry is something he hasn't done since his first victim, which was his boyfriend. Just like the other victims, he dismembered him, put him in the pots, and put him in the backyard. Dean lost contact with his family since he became homeless, so no one was looking for him. So, he got away with it. In June, he had another victim. The man's identity hasn't been released. He was a mechanic that served in the Canadian Forces. He worked at an auto shop, and he ended up meeting Bruce online dating on and off. He liked Bruce. He thought he was a good guy and easy to date, but this year was different. Bruce became more obsessive, stalker-like. He would show up at his house unannounced and put notes on his windshield on his car while he was at work. He would drive home and see Bruce sitting in his driveway. He decided to get coffee with Bruce because Bruce asked him. So on June 20th, they went out and got some coffee. Hey, sounds like a good time. He was going to go inside of Tim Hortons, but Bruce said that he wanted to talk to him in private, so he invited him inside of his van. He got in and noticed that the floor was covered with plastic tarp. It didn't strike him as strange. He didn't find it weird because he was a landscaper. God, he's a fucking idiot. Bruce asked him to lay down, and he was like, you know what, we're about to get it on. So he did. And then Bruce got on top of him, and he put his hands around his throat. The guy started having flashbacks, and he was having also visions of what it'd be like if his mother had to bury him, and then a single word popped up in his head. No. So he was able to flip himself over onto his stomach, push, and get away from Bruce, open the door, and run out. Once he got back to his own vehicle, he made a call to the police. Bruce floored it and was weeding in and out of traffic. Upset and pissed off, he was determined to get him. On the phone with the police, he decided to chase after Bruce. The police told him that he should pull over, and after chasing his attacker for a while, he finally listened to them. He believed the officer when he said that the police would take care of this. So they arrested him for assault, but Bruce said that the situation was consensual. Oh no, fuck. The police found him genuine, so they let him go. Ain't that some fucked up shit? He wasn't even trying to hide it. And if you looked on his dating apps, you would actually see that he would say, trying to push the limits to see how much you can take. Literally, that was what's in his bio. One man said that MacArthur twisted his head during sex, and another man said that he drugged him and took photos of him and sexually assaulted him. Just want to take some pictures and watch some movies. You know, nothing that bad. April 17th, 2017, he was ready to kill again. One night, he spotted a 44-year-old Misun. I don't know how to say that name. He was an immigrant from Turkey who came over here three years prior. He befriended him and invited him into his van. He drove into his apartment, and they had sex. He took a rope, and he strangled him to death and then posed him for the photos. 
put it on his hard drive, and he took a notebook from the individual, and then he dismembered him and buried him. He was very close to the people around him, so when his friends didn't hear back from him, they called the police. But with no ties with Bruce, it got nothing. So Bruce was able to get away with that as well. He went to the Dark Eagle, or The Eagle, which is a dark, anonymous place for people not to be seen. That's where they would meet. So, Bruce actually went to the Eagle, and he met up with the individual named Andrew. He was a 49-year-old bartender and an activist that known Bruce for years. But by this time, these two were in like a casual sexual relationship. So, on June 26, 2017, he had a date with Bruce, and he even documented it in his diary. He wrote a single word, Bruce. He tied up Andrew and probably pretend to be a kink. BDSM has a bad rap, but I'm not going to get into that. He would abuse BDSM with his partners until the influence of drugs, they wouldn't be able to do nothing or try to fight back or consent. And he would break another cardinal rule for BDSM, which is ignoring the safe word. So, into the bar with the rope on it, he started choking Andrew out. So he slipped like a bar and he put a rope around it, and I guess he wrapped it around Andrew's throat, and then he just pulled it back, and I guess started choking him out with it. After that, he shaved his head, and took a photo of him with the murder weapon still around his neck. Some ritual photographing, dismembering, posing, burying him, all the same shit that he was doing. Andrew was still different. What I mean he was still different is he was known around the village as an activist. He fought for the LGBTQ plus community, and his absence immediately caught everyone's attention. Andrew was different than most of Bruce's victims because he was not Middle Eastern and he wasn't living a double life. So, the queer community is not immune to racism over the years, so some members think that the community is actually whitewashed. Long story short, Andrew was white and Canadian, so immediately threw up a red flag. A month later in August, the task force was reformed and called Project Prism. The community saw in 2010 that they had a serial killer, but the police denied that. MacArthur was a person of interest. He started to panic and started deleting photos off his computer. He even sold his van to a scrapyard, only taking 150 bucks for it, trying to get rid of the evidence. The police recovered the van a month later and did a forensic analysis. They found traces of blood in the back seat and in the trunk. And in November, they started watching his every move and even tapping all his phone calls. They ended up getting a warrant to search his house, and they took his hard drive from his computer. So of January 2018, they found more evidence connecting him to the two murders. Not sure what the evidence was, but it was probably DNA from his van. He didn't do a good job deleting data from his hard drive. And it's easy for police to notice when stuff is missing. You know, technology has advanced. This is 2018. Not like some of these murders, which is like 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, even the 90s. This is literally 2018. So, yeah, this was only a few years ago. So, technology was definitely more advanced. So, he really had no chance of getting away with that. So... They knew some of the shit was missing from it, but they ended up finding all 18,000 photos of his victims. Jeez. And on January 17th, Bruce was under 24-hour surveillance while an arrest warrant was being set for him. The next day, they saw a young man entering Bruce's building. 
you know, pretty much entering his room. Not sure what the guy's name is, but he was Middle Eastern. They didn't have an arrest warrant yet, but they didn't want to take any chances. When they got in there, they saw that the man was tied to the bed but unharmed. They arrested Bruce on two counts of first-degree murder for his boyfriend and Andrew. Eight missing men and no bodies. But the police contacted all the clients that Bruce worked for in his landscaping business, and they searched 100 properties in and around Toronto. They found the row of planters, which held three human bodies. They found the remains of more and more. The bodies were either in the ravine, buried, or in the large planters. Six more charges were put on Bruce. 67-year-old Bruce had his trial January 2019. He was charged with all eight murders and no possibility of parole for 25 years. The village felt very betrayed by the police. Was Bruce ever wanting to be part of the community, or did he just wanted to use it as a killing field? Even though he came out in his 40s, that deep-rooted hatred for homosexuals due to his religion never fully disappeared. He never felt like he fit into community. And honestly, if you ask me, that piece of shit never deserved to be in that community. And that is the story of Bruce MacArthur, but here's some facts about Bruce real quick. Bruce had only one biological sister, and on February 5th, 1981, his son Todd got charged with sexual harassment. After that, that's when they filed for bankruptcy, and due to that, he ended up getting divorced to his wife. I didn't know that at all, because like I said earlier, we didn't know the reason, but I guess it was due to his son Todd, who knows. He did go to therapy as well and get antidepressants. There really isn't much more about Bruce at all. I think that this would actually be a lot more scarier if Bruce was a mall Santa that was killing kids. I think that would definitely be a lot scarier and it would actually fit because I don't understand why they nicknamed him the mall Santa and not once in the story besides them mentioning that he got the job as a side gig. Like, I know that's creepy, but like, it doesn't really fit in the story at all. You know what I'm saying? They could have gave him another nickname. You know, I don't think that Mall Santa fit him. It wasn't like he was going to work. We didn't hear anything else. It wasn't like, oh, you know, he was being a Mall Santa, went there, and, you know, murdering the kids. That would be a lot more scary, you know. But that wasn't the thing at all. That wasn't a deal at all. So I was mad confused why they would call him the Mall Santa. I don't know if there's any other killers that are, you know, around Christmas time or anything, but that was just the closest one, and it caught my eye because it said the Mall Santa. But his story doesn't seem to be that interesting, and, you know, I kind of butchered the story a little bit today, and I don't feel the greatest, so y'all forgive me. It's hard to do these stories by yourself, especially when you're doing two killers, and you're doing them every fucking week, you know what I'm saying? I'm trying my best to do them every week. That's why I need to give me a co-host so I can start doing it every week again. Just focus on one story and then have them come in with another story. And if we got some big-time person like Gary Ridgway or Jeffrey Dahmer, we can tag team together on that individual. So, yeah, I really do want to have another co-host. And I've seen the numbers kind of drop since my mom left and... We took that massive break. I mean, we were doing so fucking good, and now it's just like crashed and burned. So I don't know what to tell all of you. I do appreciate the ones that did listen. 
I looked at the last episode, it was like six listens, I was like, Jesus, I took a massive hit taking that huge break, and also mom leaving, because I know that mom was probably a big part of it as well, so nobody really wants to hear about a murder podcast when it's just one person, you know, so it is what it is, things happen, but hopefully I get over this fucking COVID, and hopefully I can get back on a regular schedule. So, I love all of y'all. Y'all stay safe. And I will catch you in another... I'll catch you in the next episode, see? Told you I was fucking up. And that's another thing. I need another co-host because your boy over here can't speak English good. (laughs) A lot of it's gibberish. See? Told you. I love all of you. Y'all stay safe. And I'll catch you next time. Watch your back, fuckers.